0: So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 8. I'm going to do something a little bit different this week. We're actually going to read the entire chapter in one stroke, and I'm going to resist every urge in my body to comment too much along the way. And then we're going to come back, and there are just a few core convictions in this chapter that I think would be helpful for us to look at as we continue to go through this book. So Acts chapter 8, you've got your Bibles, here we go. And Saul approved of his execution. I'm not going to go far. Remember, (laughs) before we took a break last week, just for those of you who weren't here, the last time we were in the book of Acts, Stephen, uh, one of those chosen by the church to lead the church in serving the needs of the church, uh, had proclaimed the gospel effectively as he served the church and was brought before the council of religious leaders. And for his faith and for his conviction and for his testimony, he was stoned to death. And so that's where we're picking up. So when they heard these things, and Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, as we read this chapter, I just want you to listen and try to imagine it. I just want you to try to put yourself there. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they had heard him, and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money That nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure, he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated on his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I asked, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, And the eunuch said, See that there's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, however you say that. And he passed through. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray, and let's see if we can discover a few core convictions from Acts chapter 8. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for your spirit that empowers uh, everyday men and women like Philip. Uh, We pray this morning that uh, your spirit can continue to do what only it can do, and it can empower very weak and feeble words that come out of my mouth and can be used for your purposes and your glory in our hearts this morning. We ask that Lord, we have the opportunity by your spirit and by your grace to leave this place uh, changed in some measure this morning, that we may exalt in the name of your precious son, Jesus, who makes it all possible. Amen. Amen. Core convictions about God's philosophy of ministry that we can pull out of Acts chapter 8, and I'm going to do the best that I can, and you can pray along with me as I talk to resist the urge to preach on a lot of other things in Acts chapter 8. A few core convictions, though, that I think we need to get our hands around and get our hearts around if we're going to understand God's philosophy of ministry, especially as we see it in Acts chapter 8. Here's the first one. You may not even get past this one. Pray me past this one. God is more concerned with his glory and his purposes than your comfort. Core conviction with God's philosophy of ministry. First one. God is more concerned with his glory and with his purposes than he is with your comfort. Why do I say that? Well, that's how the chapter starts. Acts chapter 8. Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to the prison. There's this image of even Saul right here in this text. Almost the way Peter will talk about Satan. We'll talk about the enemy later on in one of his letters, prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for those whom he may devour. You see, up until this very point, the church in Jerusalem, though struggling, though facing some persecution, uh, though enduring difficulties that arise from the differences of men and women who are coming together, trying to figure out how to live life together, uh, despite those things, for the months that have been going on so far, it's been a relatively charmed life for them. They preach sermons, and thousands get saved. And they talk about the, the story and the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ, and thousands of men, women, and children hear the message, get saved, and become part of the church, and it continues to grow. But one of the first things that Jesus said to his people when he began to explain to them his philosophy of ministry for accomplishing his ends and his purposes on the earth was that you're going to be my witnesses, not just here in Jerusalem. But we're at Acts chapter 8 so far, and where are we? We're, we're still in Jerusalem. God's original intention for his glory was not that it would be made known and reflected simply in Jerusalem and simply amongst these people, but that through these people, his glory would be known, his grace would be reflected, his goodness would be treasured from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and it's always been that way. We could take the rest of the time this morning to go back into the Old Testament and walk from the beginning, from God first spoke to Abraham, when he called Abram to himself, and said that through you and your family, I will make your name great and your family will be a blessing to the nations from the very beginning. We can walk all the way through the Old Testament and we can see that God's purposes from the beginning was that through his people, the nations to the ends of the earth would be blessed. But here we are in Acts chapter 8 and the church is still gathered together enjoying the benefits as they should of God's grace and God's transformation through Jesus together together. But they're not going anywhere. And God has said, You will be my witnesses, not just here, but from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. So, what does God do? He has to scatter them. God is more concerned with his glory and his purposes than, frankly, your comfort or my comfort. And so to continue his purposes for his glory and his plan, that all of creation from to the ends of the earth be redeemed by his grace through the person and work of Jesus, he sends what could only scatter this church at this point, and that was persecution. From the stoning of Stephen, a great persecution began to arise, and now it wasn't just against the apostles. It was turned towards everyone. And that great preaching, which led to that horrific death, has brought on this persecution which God intended to produce the scattering that he had declared would happen from the very beginning. Because God is more concerned with accomplishing his purposes and declaring his glory to the ends of the earth than he is with our comfort. And it's always been that way. It will continue to be this way for this early church from this point forward. We could take time to go back over to Hebrews. We've already done that at some some point in this series, and we can read about what would happen to this church as it would continue to scatter throughout the rest of the earth. Time after time, persecution would continue to fall upon this church. Some would be fed to lions. Some would be used as sporting in the Colosseums. Some Some would be covered in sheep's clothes and sent out amongst the wolves to be devoured by wolves. Later on in Rome... As the church would begin to take root and continue to grow, there would become an emperor who would rise and Nero would use the church as human torches outside of his house when he threw parties. He'd dip believers in tar and put them on stakes and light them on fire. That they would light his palace as he would throw great feasts and elaborate parties. Persecution, discomfort has always been the way the gospel continues to go forward through the church. A consistent reading of the Bible a consistent reading of church, church history will tell us the same thing. But it's the reflection of the heart of the gospel message itself. I mean, the heart of the gospel message is that God declares that true life comes through death. That his son suffered and died in our place for our sin and was raised to new life. And that through faith in him, we would then receive real, spiritual life. Peter will go on to say, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, talking about suffering. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Listen, Redemption Hill, when we we pray that the gospel go forward, when we pray that the the gospel message and the gospel reality be treasured from this place to the ends of the earth, and let's just say to the ends of this city, we're, we're asking for trouble you're asking for trouble. And here's one of the things I want us to be aware of, and I don't want to take too much time on this one because there's, there's other points. But one of the reasons that discomfort and persecution or difficult circumstances or, or suffering is used by God's providence to move his people along towards his purposes and his ends is that for the most part, one of the, one of the most dangerous enemies to the continued movement of of God's mission and God's purposes through his people is our comfort. I don't know if you knew this, but your comfort is one of the most dangerous enemies towards your witness, towards your role as an ambassador and moving forward God's mission to see his reputation, to see his glory magnified from here to the ends of the earth. Because when we get really, really, really comfortable, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, The tendency is, when we get really, really, really comfortable and begin to focus in on our comfort, the fruit that comes out of that generally isn't a pursuit of God's purpose and a pursuit of God's mission, but it's actually the opposite. It's a complacency. See, the more comfortable we get, the more complacent we tend to get. And the more comfortable we get and the more focused we get upon our own comfort, the more complacent we get. And you know what happens when that that begins to take root in our hearts? we actually begin to lose a sense of purpose and a sense of, a sense of meaning. And so when our comfort becomes our chief end and our comfort becomes what we continue to focus our efforts and our attention on, what begins to happen is we tend to get complacent towards the purposes for which God has for us and, and for his people and we lose a sense of why we're here and what we're doing. I, I was listening to a uh, pastor, um, J.D. Greer, he's a pastor of the Summit down in Durham this week. I was listening to a sermon that he was preaching and it just it's something he said stuck with me in relation to this he said did you know in pre modern enlightenment language there was not actually a word for boredom there wasn't actually a word for boredom that that's a very modern disease Our our comfort has produced something in our lives that begins to take over and send roots out in our soul that's produced the fruit of something that generations before didn't even have a concept of, boredom. And he went on to say that in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, I think almost up to the 50s, uh, the average child between the ages of of zero to five had zero to ten toys. Zero to ten toys, anywhere between none to ten toys. But the average child now, between the ages of zero to five, how many do you think they have? Somebody give me a number 250. That's one new toy a week. And we're the most bored people, the most bored people that history has ever known. And it doesn't change when we become adults. The toys just get more expensive. It doesn't change. We have generations of people who have no sense of purpose for their life, who don't understand their role in the place where God has put them and why they're there and what good they could do where they are. No sense of the bigger picture of what's going on. Our comfort isn't bad inherently in and of itself, but when it becomes the object of our affection, complacency and and boredom is produced, and it becomes one of the greatest enemies towards God's mission and God's purposes, not only for you, but for his glory being made known to the ends of the earth. God is far more concerned with his purposes and his glory than he is with your comfort. But before you begin to think that God's going to afflict you with boils or some level of massive suffering so that you can get off your backside and do whatever it is he th- you think he's called you to do, there's Another example of this in Acts chapter 8 that I want you to see, because it's not just suffering and persecution that God uses to move his mission forward and to get his people moving. It's just general discomfort. I mean, look at Acts chapter 8, verse 25. Now, Philip has been in Samaria. He's preached the gospel. People have gotten saved. Lame have been healed. Possessed have been freed. Joy is in the city. There's a revival going on in Samaria. Samaria. And God says when they have testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they return to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. In verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. God looked at Philip in the midst of a thriving ministry. I mean, just an everyday man who had been called out by the church to lead the church and serving the needs of the church, who who scatters when the rest of the church scatters and persecution comes, and he goes about his way and he begins to preach the gospel to the people of Samaria and a revival busts out. People get saved, people get healed. People get released from bondage that they've been held in for, who knows, maybe most of their life. And God looks at Philip. I mean, how must Philip have been feeling? I mean... Talk about a confidence boost and an ego boost. And God looks at him and says, I want you to leave here and I want you to go there. And by the way, it's a 35-mile walk and it's a desert place. Now get up and go. Here's the thing. When we think about God's call on us as a people or as individual people, let me just ask you a couple questions. Are you willing to endure discomfort for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to endure discomfort or suffering so that the the goodness and the grandeur and the grace of God might shine through you as you learn to increasingly treasure him as your delight in the midst of it? Are you willing to endure the loss of something to you that may, very, may be very precious to be able to say, Lord, as long as you're glorified, as long as in the midst of this, I don't remain the same, but I am transformed increasingly into the image of your son, and your name is glorified through my life in this. Are you willing to lose what may be very precious to you to see that end happen? Are you willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to sacrifice your time, maybe some of your talent, the way God has wired you and gifted you, some of your money or your possessions, are you willing to be uncomfortable and inconvenienced and sacrificed for the sake of God's purposes going not only from here to this city but to the ends of the earth? See, God is far more concerned with his glory being made known, his purposes being moved forward, than he is with your comfort. So that's chief conviction number one. Are you okay? You gonna handle it? I better turn my clock on, or else we're gonna be here for a long, long time. Second, number two. God intends for everyone. Say everyone. You didn't say that with any conviction. God intends for everyone. Everyone to live everyday life with gospel intentionality. We've stolen that phrase from a pastor in Europe named Steve Timmis. I love that phrase. God intends for everyone to live everyday life with gospel intentionality. look at Acts chapter eight. Let's start in verse one. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all, say all. All scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And those who were scattered, who was scattered? Everybody, all of them, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. See, when God put his philosophy of ministry together, and he looked at his disciples before he rose again to be at the right hand of God the Father until he comes again to take us home for eternity, when he laid that philosophy of ministry out to those early believers, He did not narrow the scope of his philosophy of ministry down to the apostles themselves. But when God designed a philosophy of ministry to accomplish his plan, he didn't just limit it to the twelve. He said, I'm going to empower all of you, every single last one of you, to be my witnesses here and to the ends of the earth. And just when you read Acts, and I just want to help you read this as we keep going through this book, because it's such a great book, but it's a narrative, and I want you to constantly see the story. I want you to see this smash between the ministries of Peter and the ministry of Paul, which we're going to pick up in the next couple of weeks. Luke, by the Holy Spirit, drops right in between those two great men who make up so much of this book, the ministry of two everyday men, Stephen and Philip. Philip. We get so focused on Peter and how God uses Peter in the church in Jerusalem, and later on we're going to see how Paul and Peter interface with the continual growing church to the ends of the earth, and then we get so focused on how God uses Paul to take the gospel from there and and as he gets saved to the ends of the earth throughout all of the regions that we, we miss the fact that smack dab right in the middle of Peter and Paul are two very, very powerful and important ministries of two everyday men, Stephen and Philip. You see, everybody, Luke said, was scattered outside of Jerusalem. Everyone had to go. And as they went, the natural thing for them to do, now, now let me just, I'm going to have to comment here. When, when, you, when you picture the church being scattered from Jerusalem, what I don't want you to see is something akin to, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably mark myself as a southerner here, uh, what I don't want you to see is what I saw when I was thinking about it, which is like the beginning of the Andy Griffith show. You know, when Andy and Opie are, are walking down the dirt road and Opie's got his fishing pole on his back and the music's just playing and they're just kind of cruising down along the road and they're going to get to where they're going whenever they get to where they're going. These people were being persecuted, their life was in danger. They didn't have time to go home and pack up their stuff and make sure they had what they needed and make sure everybody was taken care of and that the alarm was on and they're going to run out of town for a little while and they're going to come back. These people found the first road that was available to them as their life was being threatened and they fled and they ran. The fear of life itself was what was going in the front of their mind. And as they went, Every single one of them. You're talking about people who had heard the gospel preached, who had received the message, who had believed in the person of Jesus, who the process of transformation had begun maybe a month, maybe two months, maybe three months at most for the earliest ones, went about everywhere they went, scattered in the fear of their life, preaching the word. Now, don't get confused. They didn't set up pulpits. They didn't find some kind of tree with a stump they could stand behind and gather people. That that word has so much baggage in our culture. This word is actually the verb form of the word that we translate the gospel. The gospel. So you could literally say these people went about in the fear of their life going from, from every single road to wherever God scattered them, gospeling people as they came across them. Tim Keller actually said that as these people went about their lives in fear of their life, coming to people on the road to cities around them, that they were actually gossiping the gospel. The gospel was the thing that was on the tip of their tongue. You know gossip, good gossip. You don't know good gossip, do you? Well, before I got saved, I knew good gossip. And you heard something and you just, you know what it feels like, to have to get it out. You just got to tell somebody. It's just too good. You just know you can't keep it to yourself. You got to find a reason to get it out. These people, everyday people, lived their everyday life and for them it was in fear of life and death. With a gospel intentionality, everywhere they went, they were gossiping the gospel. And this is the way that from the book of Acts forward through church history, the rest of the world will be won to Christ. It was everyday people living everyday life with gospel intentionality, speaking, to God, speaking the good news of the gospel, gossiping the gospel to the people in their everyday webs of relationships and the spheres of, of influence that God had put them in and the paths that they would travel in their everyday life. A church historian, Kenneth Scott Laudrette, he said that the primary change agents in the spread of the faith were the men and women who earned their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those whom they met in a most natural fashion. These guys weren't waiting for the apostles to show up. They weren't scattering to nearby towns and organizing events and trying to get a tent and trying to get food and trying to gather people with flyers and knocking on doors so the apostles could come down and the apostles could preach and the apostles could, could declare the gospel and the word of God. These people went about their everyday life just simply gossiping the good news of God's grace that was so filling their hearts and changing their lives that they were so satisfied by and so desirous to share with with others. And so when we think about this, and let me try to make this personal, when we think about living everyday life with gospel intentionality and and we look at the example here in Acts chapter 8 of the people being scattered and and speaking the gospel and gossiping the gospel, what I I want you to understand that when you think about your life and the immediate objections that are popping up into your head, like when I describe these guys, and you've got them, you've got at least two, maybe three, some of you a whole list of objections to how you're different than them how they were different from you, how something was particular about them and it doesn't really apply to you, I want you to, I want you to hear something. This capacity to, to gossip the gospel in everyday life, to, to speak the gospel in everyday life has nothing to do with the issue of training. None of these people were waiting for the apostles to come and, and to give them courses in apologetics and evangelism. They weren't fearing the difficult theological questions that would come from people or the apologetic questions that may come and, and concerned they might not be able to answer them and they might discredit the faith and, and might make Jesus look bad. And, and then in those, in those struggles and in those fears, residing themselves back to waiting for someone else to come and to either equip them or to do what they were supposed to do, the gospel had become so rich in their hearts. They had, had so tasted the goodness of God's grace, they couldn't help but open their mouth and it would just come out. And it's not an issue of training when it comes to you and I. You have more understanding of the gospel and of the scriptures than any one of these people did. I want you to, want you to know that. These guys had heard the gospel and been transformed by the gospel at best three months. Three months. It's not an issue of, of training. I mean, what they had were were hearts that were treasuring the, the riches of the gospel and the gospel just naturally lived on the tip of their tongue so that when they opened their mouth, it just fell out. I got a a, a text this morning from another pastor in Nashville. He just sends out to a bunch of pastors that he knows as encouragement on Sunday morning. I always look forward to getting them. Um, and I wrote down what he said. I'm going to have to turn my head sideways to read my paper. But it, He said, what empowers praise in our hearts? And you can think about praise in your heart being synonymous with them speaking the gospel, just gossiping the gospel as they open up their mouth and it just comes out. When you just meet people, it just just comes out. What what empowers praise in our hearts is not the ease of our circumstances. They they were fearing for their lives, weren't they? It's not the ease of our circumstances, but it's the worth of our Lord. What empowers our capacity to Live everyday life with gospel intentionality isn't how easy we've got it. In fact, that becomes the enemy of this most of the time. But it's understanding and treasuring and surrendering to the worth of our Lord. So every single week when we come, we, we make it our, our business because God has called us to as we stand up here to open up the scriptures and, and to equip, to encourage, to correct, to direct, to display the worth of God and, and the news of the gospel to you week in and week out. And then when we, when we finish We don't just kind of dismiss, you know, if you've ever paid attention to the very end here, we don't just dismiss out to lunch, but we try to purposely acknowledge that we're actually being sent by God back to the places where he has called us to take the gospel that has been proclaimed, to take the encouragement that we have received, to take the correction and make application of it in the place where God has called us and and sent us. His intent and his philosophy of ministry is that all of us, everyday people, all of us, not one of us excluded. Everyday people begin to live everyday life with gospel intentionality. And so ask yourself this., well, I'm going to give you some questions with all of these so as you think. What are some of your particular webs of relationships? What circles, what spheres of, of influence that's a common term today? What spheres of influence has God placed you in? When you leave your house in the morning and you head out upon your way, what paths do you take who? who do you cross? What people do you cross on a regular basis? What opportunities has God given you in places that God has put you in where you can live everyday life with gospel intentionality? And when you think about this, is is the gospel on the tip of your tongue? Would it be easy for you to gossip the gospel? Is it something that's just exploding out of your heart? So God is far more concerned with his purposes and his glory than he is with our comfort. And God intends for every single one of us to live everyday life with gospel intentionality and something else that's core to God's philosophy of ministry that I want us to see out of Acts chapter eight is that God is passionate about both peoples, and people. God is passionate about both peoples, plural, and people. You see, in Acts chapter 8, when you begin to look at them together as one story, you actually get two scopes of, of God's concern. You actually see examples of both God's passion for peoples, for groups, for places, and you see an example and a portrait of God's passion for individuals. Here, we'll start here, verse 5. Luke said, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them, the Christ. And the crowds of one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs he did and for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them And and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. You see, God has a passion and God has a desire and God uses his people to reach peoples, to reach cities, to reach nations, to reach people groups, to see the gospel proclaimed, to see peoples, transformed by the good news of of God's grace. And one of the things that we're so privileged here at Redemption Hill to have is a number of people who have given their lives to the overseas service of of God's gospel going forward, especially over here at the IMB. People who have given their lives to see peoples in other places who have never heard the good news of Christ proclaimed to them. They've given their lives, they've given their resources, they've given their time, they've given the breath they have to see the gospel proclaimed, where the gospel has never been proclaimed. So that peoples... Ethnolinguistic peoples could come to know the good news of God's grace. And, and we want to encourage you with that, and we want to equip you with that, and we want to give you resources so that as God's heart for peoples and God's heart for the nations begins to grow in our hearts so that we can reflect His heart for His creation, as that begins to grow, we want to give you resources to engage in that. But for the sake of the time we've got this morning, I actually want to narrow down and say it's, it's right for us as a, as a church to think about our city this way. I mean, God has a desire to see the city of Richmond, peoples, the people that make up the city of Richmond, transformed by the good news of God's grace. So let me ask you something. Do you think the city of Richmond the people around us would better know Redemption Hill by our love for the gospel, by our love for them, or by the things that we're most against? Do you think that the city of Richmond would describe us best by our love for the gospel or our dislike for particular things, for particular behaviors, or God forbid, for particular peoples, John Knox, a famous prayer. He prayed one day to God, give me Scotland or I die. Give me Scotland or I die. Can you pray, give me Richmond or I die? Do you think about our city this way? Do you think that God has a particular desire or concern to see transformation come to our city? And college students, what about your campuses? Can you pray, give me the University of Richmond, or I'll die? Who's praying, give me Virginia Union, or I'll die? God has a desire to see peoples, to see places, to see cities and nations transformed by his gospel being proclaimed and hearts being gripped by the good news of of his grace. You see, when we understand God's purposes and we understand God's plans to see his glory made known to the ends of the earth and God's philosophy of ministry of saying that it's going to be through you and my empowering of you that's going to make this possible. That you're going to be an instrument in my hands of redemption from here to the ends of the earth and I want to see cities and peoples and nations transformed by the power of this gospel. You have absolutely zero reason to be bored. You have absolutely zero reason to be bored or confused about what you're supposed to be doing. There's really no reason There's no room for the boredom. There's no room for the lack of purpose and the lack of reason for why I'm here and what I'm supposed to be doing in the paralyzed lives that so many people in the church live today. God's philosophy of ministry for reaching the nations involves you. Exactly where he's put you. So let me ask you some more questions. Do you think about the place where God has put you here in Richmond? The way people let's say at the IMB, would send others to other nations, would think about those countries? Do you think about this city and where God has put you? Do you think about it like a missionary? Do you think about it like one who has been called by God to bear witness to his glory and his sufficiency right here in the city where God has put you? Do you you think about Richmond like a, a missionary? Are you praying about places like Highland Park? Are you praying about places like Jeff Davis Highway, just south of the river, are you praying about places like Church Hill or your particular neighborhood or or your campus? I mean, this is the very thing you're going to see represented in the communities for the next twelve to fourteen weeks as we're trying to embody the reality of what God has called us to, who God has called us to be, and what God has called us to do. As we're trying to look at our city and look at the people in the city and, and say, "God, give us this city," or or we die. And how do you want to use us, particularly right here, to go and to see the gospel proclaimed? in the city and see lives transformed? Do you think about your neighborhood that way? Or do you think about your workplace that way? Do you you look at yourself as the pastor of your office? That you walk in every single morning and these are the people that you're called to reach with the gospel. Not with some grandiose proclamation of the word behind your, your desk when all are there, but do you pray for the people who are there? Do you listen to them? Do you care about them? Do you involve yourself in their lives? Do you know what their struggles are? Do you know what their concerns are? Have you created opportunities to be able to listen to those things? Is the gospel on the tip of your tongue ready to be gossiped? Is that thing that they're looking for when they share with you the thing that's gripping their heart that they're so afraid of? God has a desire to see peoples transformed and God sends his people to those who need the gospel. From cities to nations, the people groups, but also to individuals. This is what we miss sometimes in the comparison in Acts chapter eight if we don't catch it. Through persecution, God's providence sends Philip down to Samaria and he preaches the gospel and cities starts to get saved and people start to get healed and people are starting to get baptized and set free. And God calls him away from this great ministry to a city. So I want you to walk that desert road. I'm not gonna tell you why I'm gonna have you go down there, but I know why I'm gonna go down there because there's a man on that road that I'm sending you to. God has a desire not just to see peoples reached and peoples transformed, but individual people as well. Look at verse 26 and 29. Don't don't trust me. Look at the Bible. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south and to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a a desert place. And so Philip obeyed and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all of her treasure. And He had come to Jerusalem to worship, but he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join that chariot. See, God's heart is for the individual as well. And if we're going to see whole peoples transformed by the gospel, we're going to have to be able to love and serve individuals as well. See, God's heart just isn't for peoples and let me say this and let me be really honest sometimes we can become so fixated on peoples people groups here and overseas and and we can talk about them and we can fixate on them and by God's grace we can pray for them and we can we can love them and we can serve them but we can absolutely ignore the people that God has put around us love for peoples can become an excuse to actually engage people but God's heart is not just for the nations and not just for the cities, but for the individual people who make them up. You see, to an Israelite at this particular time, an Ethiopian where this man was from, which is now probably closer to what we would call Sudan, would represent in their mind people at the ends of the earth. This is what Luke is kind of showing us here. This is, it's going. It's going to make its way there. But God's concern is not just for groups, but for peoples. That means the neighbor you don't like who kicks his dog. It means the coworker who you can't stand because you know he's cheating on his wife and he's getting ready to abandon his kids. It's for that guy sitting next to you in class who hasn't showered in a week. God's concern is for individuals as well. And God sends his people to those who he knows needs the gospel. So God is far more concerned with his glory and his purposes than your comfort and God has intended for all of us every single one of us to live everyday life with gospel intentionality and in that act you need to know that God is passionate for peoples but God is also passionate for the individual for people and right on the heels of that the thing you've got to recognize and maybe I made up a word here we're not sure yet but God is no respecter of your prejudice in the process of proclaiming his glory to the ends of the earth. In the process of living everyday life with gospel intentionality to the places where God has called you and God will send you, you need to know that God is absolutely no respecter of your prejudice. And just in Acts chapter eight, this Ethiopian eunuch, and what do you know of him? What do we know about this guy? Well, we know, I'll be real quick for you when you read it, that he was crazy rich. He had his own chariot. He worked in the court of the queen of Ethiopia, Queen Candace, and he covered, guarded, protected, oversaw the use of of all of her treasures. And here he was in his chariot with a driver. Most people walked. If they were rich, they might have had a donkey. This guy had a chariot with a driver. And he had come from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem so that he could worship. The other thing we know, though, from the story is that he was a eunuch. He was a man who probably from his early childhood years, maybe early teens, it, it's all different in every culture, had been castrated. And that allowed him to serve in the court of the royals. There's a number of reasons why people would do that, especially for guys who worked in the, in the courts. But for one thing, the king could always be sure he protected his own interests. That guy wasn't going to be a threat to his lineage and his line. And that's the life this guy lived. And he lived a charmed life. He was wealthy. He oversee, was very powerful. He was very rich. But his heart desired to worship the God of Israel. And he had taken his chariot, and he had made the long trip from Ethiopia all the way to Israel. What do you think he found when he got to the temple? When he got to the temple, he found a giant plaque that was over one of the gates. And over that gate, there was part of Deuteronomy 23 written on it, where it particularly forbid eunuchs from entering into the temple to worship God for they had been defiled they were then unclean and there was no fixing that so here's this man who heart longed to worship the God of Israel we don't know how God began to work that out his spirit began to work it out in this man's life and this man came to the people of God to the place of God to worship God and when he got there he found that he wasn't welcome Particular aspect of his life and his circumstance and his standing had made him unclean in the eyes of God's people. Listen, I, we can do a whole sermon on this. You, we can do a whole sermon on this at some point. One of the, if not, let me just say this. One. I'm gonna be really kind. Our city is crawling with people in whom the Holy Spirit is at work. And their greatest barrier to worship is you and I. This city is crawling with people in whom the Holy Spirit is at work, drawing them to himself. And often their greatest barrier is you and I, are barriers that you and I put up. God is no respecter of your prejudice. And if I were to give you a second, I probably don't even need to give you five seconds. You've already got people in your mind you can just be honest. But God sends his people to those who need to hear the gospel, and he's no respecter of the prejudice that resides in your heart. That eunuch wasn't the only one. That, that was like a minor one. The beginning of Acts chapter 8, you're dealing with something that is much deeper, is much more ingrained, and is, is much more common when you, when you read the scriptures. Persecution came, and the people were scattered, and where did Philip go? He went to Samaria. Philip went to Samaria. He would have spent his entire life trying to avoid having to take the road to Samaria. But when in God's providence he brings persecution to scatter his people, it says Philip went there. He didn't have to go there. He wasn't forced there. There were other roads out of town that people took. But Philip went to Samaria. And here's the thing about Samaria. The Jews hated the Samaritans. If you've been in church for any period of time in your life, you've you've heard these stories. These stories. But for centuries, there was great hostility and enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans because, see, back in the day when the kingdom of Israel was actually two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, when the nation or the the group of the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took them away, what was generally common is that they would send other people into the land they conquered so that they wouldn't lose the land that they actually conquered once they got geography. But what the Assyrians did is they left some of the Israelites there and they sent some of their people there. And so those people began to marry and began to have children. And so for generations, they began to grow and to populate. And the southern kingdom of Israel, when it was taken captive by the Babylonians and taken away from the land, they didn't intermarry with the Babylonians. The southern kingdom of Israel remained in their eyes pure, undefiled. But to them, the Samaritans, they were the height of defilement. They had intermarried. You think of all the regulations in the people of Israel. We go back and read them about the mixing of items and the mixing of goods. To them, the Samaritans were the epitome of defilement. But don't feel bad for them because they responded in like manner. When the Jews began to build their temple in Jerusalem, the Samaritans, who had a history of being part of the, Jewish, the Israeli Jewish lineage, chose not to help. Instead, they built their own temple to rival the temple in Jerusalem. And when the people would come to make sacrifices or whenever they would have the the, the big pilgrim feast of the Jewish calendar in in Jerusalem, the Samaritans would come into the area and they would throw dead pigs into the court of the temple so as to defile it. So that people couldn't come and make their sacrifices and their offerings. The way that the Israelites would, would often signal to each other around the land that it was time to come to the temple, it was time to come and the pilgrimage to start is they would start something that was kind of like a smoke signal over the peaks of the, of the mountains. And the people would know when the signals would come that it was time to come to Jerusalem for the feast. And the Samaritans had a habit of lighting fires and setting signals to bring the Israelites back to the land as they would cross their roads. They would jump them, rob them, beat them, kill them, steal from them. So don't feel too awful, off the bat for the Samaritans. But God's plan was not just for his people. God's plan was that his gospel would go forward, not only from Jerusalem to Judea, but to Samaria as well. And God would send his people to those people who needed to hear the gospel. And that's exactly where Philip went. Philip went to the people who he had learned and grown to despise. And the power of the Holy Spirit, his heart was full of love and care and concern. And he went and he gossiped the gospel. Let me just ask you, when you think and you get quiet, who, who in your mind, in your life, in your heart, who, who are your Samaritans? and Who's your Ethiopian eunuch? Who are those people you, you want to see the gospel transform, just not here, just not through you? God, send somebody to reach them just not me, who, who are those people? Who's your Samaritan? Who's your Ethiopian eunuch? And I want you to remember as you think about that, if God, can, if God can save your soul, his arm is certainly not too short to save theirs. God is no respecter of your prejudice when it comes to seeing his glory being made known to the ends of the earth. And God has made a way. God has made a way to redeem the unredeemable. The thing you need to know about God's philosophy of ministry is that God has made a way. You don't have to come up with it. We don't have to create it. We don't have to reinvent it. We don't have to think it up. God has made a way to redeem the unredeemable. Verse five says that when Philip left, Jerusalem in persecution, he went down to the city of Samaria and there he proclaimed to them the Christ. The message of the person and work of Jesus Christ is the way that God has created in his philosophy of ministry to reach the ends of the earth to see the unredeemable redeemed. And what we see in Acts chapter 8 are a whole host of fruits of that particular message and that particular plan taking root in the lives of different people. I'll I'll just give you a couple just so you can see. I wish we had time to do all of them. One thing you begin to see, and I think it makes a lot of sense here, is you begin to see peace rise in people's hearts where before there had really been no peace. Peace comes in people's lives and in people's hearts where there really had been no peace. And just thinking about the Samaritans and thinking about the history and thinking about the animosity and thinking about the hostility, the message of the gospel, the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ is the only eternal thing that has the capacity and the power to tear down walls of hostility and animosity that had been erected and held onto for generations. That's it. I mean, I just, when you read this, just, just think about it. I think it was unbelievably cool that when Philip went to Samaria and preached the gospel and the Holy Spirit began to transform people's lives and they began to believe and began to get saved and word got back to Jerusalem that in God's providence, who did he send to go check it out? Who did he send? He sent Peter and John. Now, it doesn't, may not perk anything up in your ears immediately when you think about it, because we saw Peter and John getting called to the council earlier in Acts, and maybe the Peter and John are just the big dogs right now. But if you were to go back just a little bit in the Gospels, what you'll find earlier on in Jesus' ministry is that before Peter ever landed on the scene in Samaria to preach the Gospel, Jesus had already been there. There is story after story of Jesus' ministry in the area of Samaria all throughout the gospels, but there's one particular time when Jesus was with the apostles in Samaria, and it says the Samaritans weren't receiving his message. Jesus was preaching, Jesus was in the town, but the people weren't having anything of it. And who spoke up? John. And do you know what John said? You would expect Peter to say this, but it was actually John. You know what he said? Master, should we call down fire from above? We're just going to burn them. They're Samaritans after all. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Pray every single morning, thank God for not making me a Samaritan or a Gentile dog. Master, they're not receiving you. Let me call it down. Let me just call some fire down and burn them. And not only is that quite the estimate of his own capacities, but you sense the animosity And here through Philip, an everyday man living everyday life in the face of danger and death with gospel intentionality, and he's preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with Samaritans, and they're getting saved, and the Holy Spirit sends Peter and John to go verify the work of God in the area of Samaria, and here's John, who had wanted to burn these people down with holy fire not too long ago with Jesus, now being sent to see these very people being transformed by the good news of God's grace, that long-standing hostility that had so been built between them that he had grown up with, that he had breathed all of his life in one instance through one word, had been torn down, and God had sent him to verify that so that he could go back to the 12 and he could say, these people, these Samaritans, these who once we had no dealings with now are co-heirs with us in Christ. Where there had been no peace, there is now peace. And not only peace, but an absolutely new identity for people who we used to despise. They're one of us. They're one of us. I love how God calls John down to do that. God has a plan in his philosophy to redeem those who, outside of his grace, are absolutely unredeemable. And one of the things that comes in the midst of that is peace. And, and I love this the same kind of key peace. You've got to see these two stories together. The same kind of peace begins to come for the eunuch where the Samaritans had been despised for their their breeding, for their their mixing of nations and peoples. This this eunuch had been despised by God's people and barred from the worship of God for his station in life and for the disgrace of his body. And there had been no peace between him and God's people. He was defiled, but Peter rolls up on him. And starting with the scripture that he was reading, he began to tell him the good news about Jesus. And think about how excited that guy was where there had been no peace. He'd come all the way to Israel, all the way to Jerusalem to worship God, and he got there, and he can't get in. And he's on his way back. Luke says, as Peter began to tell him about the good news of Jesus Christ, you've got to believe he began to tell him the good news of how that veil had been torn down. How Paul would say that, that wall of hostility that had been built up, that had barred people from entering the holiest of holies, had been destroyed, and now through the person and work of Jesus, the very presence of God can be alive in your heart. No more walls, no more hostility, no more keeping you out. Through the person of Jesus, you now have direct access to God himself. Think of how excited that guy had to be. And you've got to think, John, I mean Philip, knowing what he was saying, who he was talking to, had to take him to, from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 56, I mean, you, you haven't memorized Isaiah 56 yet, have you? It's coming. You know what Isaiah 56 says? Listen to this. Isaiah 56. You've got to think about this Samaritan. Isaiah 56, four. for thus says the Lord. Listen to this. He was reading Isaiah 53. He's preaching the gospel to him. You've got to think he takes him here. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. (laughs) And to the foreigners, where was he from? Ethiopia. And to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. How excited was this guy, where there had been no peace and only hostility, where there had been no joy that could come from the very presence of God within him. Now, Philip preaches to him the Christ, and not only is he brought near, but he's given a name. He's given a name of a son of the Most High God. And where there had been no joy, now there's joy. I love how Luke notes that in both of these stories. In verse 8. Because of the preaching of the gospel and the message of Jesus, now there was much joy in the city where there had been no joy. And as he preaches the good news to the Ethiopian eunuch, it says verse 39, when the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, the eunuch saw him no more and he went away rejoicing. Peace, a new name, joy, all fruits of the gospel taking root when God begins the process of redeeming that which was unredeemable. And lastly, because... We're going to go too long if I don't stop here, but I want you to see it. As the gospel gets proclaimed and those who were formerly unredeemable begin to get redeemed, what you see taking root and beginning to spring up in the lives of these people is a freedom that outside of the grace of God you can never and will never experience in your life. See, in verse nine in chapter eight, After after Philip is is preaching and the people are listening and believing and being healed, we meet a different guy, don't we? We meet a man named Simon, who was a magician, who was famous. I mean, he was their big guy in town. Everybody knew Simon. Everybody was in awe of Simon. Everybody thought that he was the power of God. In fact, that title there in chapter 8 can often be translated God himself. Many thought Simon was a deity himself for the magic that he expressed in the, in the lives of the people. He was a famous guy, and the people began to hear Philip, begin to believe Philip, and begin to get healed, and begin to, to get set free. And they paid attention to him, Luke said in verse 11. But when Philip got to Samaria, what did he find? Simon, the guy who's running the show, the guy who they thought was deity, the guy who had all the power, doing all the tricks, doing all the fun things. Philip gets there, and he finds people who are lame, crippled, Possessed by demons in misery. And Philip begins to tell them of one who is truly great. Simon said he was great and Philip begins to tell them of Jesus. He began to preach to them of Jesus and his kingdom. And what you see is that Simon either lacked the power to actually help those people or he lacked the desire to help them or they lacked the money to actually employ him to help them. See, before the gospel was preached, these people were strapped in misery and despair and anguish. But when Philip came and preached the gospel, not only was there peace and not only was there joy, but there was now freedom. And Philip proclaimed to them the Christ. He proclaimed to him the one who truly was great, the Son of God who came and took on flesh The Son of God who came and lived on earth the life that they were created to live. The Son of God through who his life of perfect worship before God earned all that they were so desirous to earn before God, a righteousness that they could never achieve. And then that same Son of God who then laid his life down on a cross and died a painful death in their place for their sins. One through whose death they could receive life one through who faith in them, him, and his life in their place, and his death in their place, they could actually be set free. They could actually experience a freedom and a life that they were never able to experience before. Philip proclaimed to them the Christ, so that everyone who, like the Samaritans, would turn from their trust in their power and the power of others or Turn from their trust and their false hopes and their idols and turn to the person of Jesus. Like them, they could experience forgiveness and new life and freedom and peace and joy. God has a plan and a way to redeem what was formerly unredeemable, and it's through the person and work of Jesus. And it demands a response. And it demands a response. Simon heard the message proclaimed, saw the freedom experienced, and said, I want that. I want the capacity to do that. He wanted the power of the Spirit, but not God and the Spirit himself. And for that, he was rebuked and called to repent. But the eunuch heard the message of the person and the work of Jesus, and his heart soared. And his heart soared. And he grabbed Philip and said, what keeps me from getting baptized? It's really the tale of two different responses, these two stories. The gospel demands a response from every single one of us. And so you've got to ask yourself, what what prevents you this morning from trusting in Jesus' life lived in your place and his death on the cross in your place for your sins? What, present, what prevents your heart from soaring with that message this morning? And church, as I pray, I want you to know that God is passionate about his plan to see his glory reflected through transformed lives to the ends of the earth. And I want you to read Acts chapter 8, and I want you to understand that it's an unstoppable plan there isn't a barrier that we can put up that it doesn't overcome. And that God has called and empowered and graced every single one of us to be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege, not simply of being a pastor and standing up here and preaching, but of being a a man who has been transformed by your grace, who has been called to be a part of your mission, and who gets to be an instrument in your hands to see those who were formerly objects of your hostility and your wrath be transformed into your children, objects of your grace and love and forgiveness. Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts to, to see the world around us, to see the city around us, to see the people around us, and that we would have your heart, your passion, your desire for them. Lord, help us not to be satisfied in our own comfort. Lord, let us fight complacency and confusion. Lord, but let us wake up every single morning by your grace, empowered by your spirit, realizing that you have put us exactly where we are and that we are to be your witnesses, ambassadors for your glory. Lord, help us to be people who have the gospel on the, the, the gospel on the tip of our tongue. Who go through our lives and the places that you send us simply gossiping the gospel to those around us. Lord, let us pray. Give us Richmond. Give us Richmond, or we die. We ask this, Lord, that a great name would be made for you, not for us, but for you. Amen.